Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. David Houle will join us to discuss the shift age. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And your world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, the rapidly accelerating pace of modern life has eased many of our daily transactions, yet at the same time destabilized many of the older structures of daily living. This naturally leads to the question of where is all this progress taking us? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. David Houle. Mr. Houle is the noted futurist, strategist, and speaker whose career has spanned more than 20 years in media and entertainment, earning him a number of accolades, including two Emmy Awards. He has served as Senior Vice President and Managing Director of University Access, an e-learning company, and he writes the highly regarded futurist blog, evolutionshift.com. And his new book, The Shift Age, explores many of these issues for a general audience. Mr. Houle, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, it's my pleasure, Charles. And as I mentioned to you before, I'm thrilled to be on the Grok radio show because when I read Stranger in a Strange Land, and I must say it was in the 1960s, I immediately started using that word grok, and there really is no true synonym for the word grok. And so it became an active part of my vocabulary until I got tired of speaking speaking to people who never read science fiction and didn't understand it. (laughs) So thank you. It's an honor to be on the show with that name. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for agreeing to appear on our show, and uh, I'm curious, have you been able to grok the future yet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I do. You know, I often say I may not be the smartest guy in the room, but I'm the only guy in the room who always seems to think about and is fascinated about the future. So I have a fairly good grok of the future. Uh, well, your new book is called uh, The Shift Age, and I'm, I'm curious, what do you actually mean by The Shift Age? Well, you know, the, the quick derivation is that I had a sense, I was, I've given speeches about the future for about the past 10 years while doing other things, and about three years ago, I just had a sense that we something fundamental was different. So I went back and I touched base with all the greats that had been right about the last 30 years. You know, Alvin Toffler, Marshall McLuhan, even Arthur C. Clarke, Buckminster Fuller, Peter Drucker. You know, I reread them to where their accuracy kind of fell off and tried to see what was going on that they didn't touch on. And so I kind of, over the course of about a week of deeply thinking this, I kind of got to the aha moment that we're coming into a new age. So the shift age is a new age that we're coming into that I think historians... 2025 will look back and go, oh, that's when the New Age began, between 2005 and 2010. And what's sort of the characteristic of this shift age that we're living in right now? Well, the the reason I gave it the name, the shift age, is that the speed of change, which accelerated dramatically in the information age over the last 30 years, has accelerated to the point where it is constant, so that the speed of change is our environment. And so, therefore, the ground we stand on is constantly shifting. Our point of view is constantly shifting. 
things that used to happen in a decade happen in a year and a month and a week now. So everything is shifting, and I would suggest that you listeners, if they just reflect on their life, on their worldview, on their professions, they'll feel that everything is in a state of shift. I think it is a fundamental new reorganization going on. And so how is this different then from the so-called information age that uh, many people think we're in at the moment? Yeah, well, we, you know, we'll always be in the information age, just like we're always in the industrial age, because we manufacture things, and the agricultural age, because we grow things. But there are three forces that I submit are the three forces that are reshaping our world. And when I use the pronoun our or we, I'm talking about humanity. The first force is the flow to global, not just to a global economy, but that the concept of global. Everything is flowing to the concept of global. You know, we've gone from being families to tribes to villages to cities to city-states to nation-states, and now I think we are in the global stage of human evolution. So that's the first force, the flow to global. The second force, simultaneously, is the flow to the individual. We have more choice today as individuals. We have more connectedness as individuals. We have more mobility as individuals than at any other time in history so that the power is flowing to the individual. So you have the reorganization of the world around, if you will, the macro-macro, the largest unit of humanity, which is humanity, and to the micro-micro, or the smallest unit of humanity, which is the individual. So those two forces are combined and amplified by the third force, which is our accelerating electronic connectedness, which, of course, allows us to be ever better articulated individuals anywhere in the world and connect globally anywhere we are. So those three forces, I think, are new forces that, are, that, that started to happen over the last 20 years. I define 1985 and 2005 as the threshold decades, threshold between what was and what will be, which largely was the information age. But we're certainly in this process of shifting to the increased global economy. And sort of at, at present, though, many parts of the, the globe are not really connected in the way that we're at. I mean, what needs to happen for the global flow of information to actually happen? Well, you know, the interesting thing is it, it is happening. When I researched this book, and I, it was, you know, was, I was finalizing the research a little, about a year ago, I was using 2006 data. And at the end of 2006, it was predicted that there would be 3 billion cell phone users, and there's 6.8 billion of us today, by 2010. And we reached 3.1 billion cell phone subscribers in the first quarter of this year. So what that means, Charles, is that it took 20 years to go from the first cell phone subscriber to the one billionth, 20 years. It took four years to go from one to two billion, and it took two years to go from two to three billion, which means that over the past 24 months, there have been 1.5 million new cell phone subscribers on the planet every day. So the connectivity is there. 50% of every single man, woman, and child alive on the planet, basically, in simple math, has a cell phone. And I think that's the transformative technology, certainly the Internet, certainly the computer. But we are becoming connected. And, you know, the example I use when I talk about a growing connectivity is the earthquake in China. 
Now, you know, that earthquake in China was so immediate and we were so connected that we felt the anguish of those parents outside that school wanting to see if their only child was going to survive or not. And we saw it days before help could get there because it was an earthquake. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that might have been on page 16, maybe with a photograph or, or not in the local newspaper. You know, I, I like to say that here we are in 2008. It was 150 years ago in the United States of America that the Pony Express existed. That was from 1859 to 1861. And the reason the Pony Express was ex came to creation was prior to 1859 in the United States of America and anywhere else in the world, the speed of communication was a horse day how far a horse could travel in a day. So if something happened in St. Louis on a Monday, somebody might know about it in New York till a Thursday. Then the Pony Express was every 30 miles was a new rider and a new horse, and that lasted for two years transcontinentally until the telegraph in 1861, which then accelerated on the telephone. So it was just 100 years ago that the speed of communication was a horse day, and now it's simultaneous. You know, I happen to be in Chicago right now. You happen to be in Chicago right now. But I could be in, in Beijing right now talking to you, and it would be live and it would be real. So it's immediate. Well, certainly information is, is very immediate, and at present, uh, a lot of commerce also is just because of increased mm -hmm. you know, transportation. But with growing energy demands, a lot of people have commented that that sort of infrastructure could very easily collapse. No question about it. No question about it. The, every single global issue that we face today can be traced back to the explosive growth in the population. It took 150,000 years for modern man to get to 1 billion 103 years to get to 2 billion, with 6.8 billion today. In other words, in my lifetime, the population of the, of the world has increased almost 300%. And that triggers everything. As far as energy goes, I've written in my blog, you know, evolutionship.com, a lot. And now I'm being validated by the venture capitalists, at least in this country, that Alternative energy is the single greatest wealth creation opportunity in the history of humanity. The VC is investing about 50% of their money now in alternative and renewable energy. are saying there's more money to be made in, if you will, energy technology than has been made to date in information technology. So I think energy is the future for America if we can get ahead of the curve on that and rewrite policy and, and get some leadership. And uh, at the same time, you know, it's the single biggest problem that humanity faces. You're right. Oh, what are estimations of the current alternative energy sources that exist right now? Well, you know, people always ask me that. And at this point in time, I say I'm one of the all of the above guys. <laughs> you know, solar, yes. Wind, yes. Wave, yes. Geothermal, yes. Space solar power, which I'm particularly uh, fascinated by, yes. Conversion of waste into energy. I mean, there's research going on now that's converting CO2 into hydrogen. If we can convert CO2, which is the single greatest waste product we put out, that is global warming, uh, if we can create that into energy, we've solved the equation. And there's, I fully believe that that might happen in the next 10 years. Hmm. Uh, I've heard you talk about uh, space solar power. Is it? Basically, space solar power is something that, and I'm part of a group of scientists and astronauts, and I occasionally talk to them. We're trying to get it on the national agenda. It's an idea that came into being in the late 70s at NASA when the price of oil was going up so fast. NASA realized that they had 
solar panels that were helping power the satellites. And they came up with this idea that now, with technological innovation and uh, our dependency on foreign oil and the cost of oil, is a real uh, option. Here's the vision. Think of a mile-in-diameter solar panel in geosynchronous orbit over the planet. Three things. One, the sun is twice as powerful there as down here on Earth because there's no atmosphere. Two, there's 24 hours of sunlight. And three, there's 365 days of sunlight a year. And that energy can be transmitted in laser-like, non-heat-generating, low-loss way down to the surface of the Earth and used for energy. And the, the scientists that have taught me this, the, the great scientists in space solar power, basically have said that if we decide as a country by 2012 to do this, we could have one to three of these in orbit by 2025, six to ten by 2050, perhaps two dozen by 2100. And depending on your trend lines as to energy consumption, population growth, all that, those two dozen satellites could handle you know, anywhere from two-thirds to four-fifths of the humanity's need for energy. And if you believe that I do, that we're going to run out of petroleum anywhere from 50 to 100 years, the sun is supposed to be around for 5.5 billion. So, you know, all the energy on the Earth comes directly and directly from the sun. So the, the thing I like about that, Charles, sorry to go on about it, but it's really a vision, is that if we, the United States, could get together with China, Japan, India, the EU, Russia, all the, all the entities that have space programs and do this collectively, then we create a collective consciousness and collaboration to solve the single greatest problem in humanity today, which will help us deal with all the other issues that come up. And if we do that, then this kind of early stage private space industry, you know, give us a quarter million dollars, we'll give you 20 minutes of wait listeners, <laughs> we'll, we'll have some real value and we would create tanker payloads for the private space industry that could last for 75 years. So it's a great way to get governments together and the public sector and the private sector together to solve what is arguably the greatest issue facing humanity. So I love it. Space <laughs> solar power, I think, is the big, is the big answer. Though it takes direction, commitment. You know, some of the scientists use the phrase, you know, Manhattan Project, getting a man to the moon. It needs to be that type of a commitment. Mm, but on a global scale, really. <laughs> on a global scale, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Because if it's not on a global scale, then we have to protect our energy, and then it becomes military-oriented, and, and it's counterproductive. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious then, what are the choices then that both individuals and the global community as a whole really face right now in terms of moving beyond the shift age? Uh, well, clearly, we have overpopulation. Mm -hmm. I mean, 2 billion of us in 1927, we didn't sit down and decide to manage our growth because we live on a finite planet. So we have to, we, humanity, has to deal with overpopulation. We have the energy crisis. We have the water crisis. And the food crisis, you know, it always pops up, but I think that is more easily solvable based on political distribution, legal ramifications. I mean, we, we can handle probably another billion people with existing agricultural efforts. The thing I do want to say, though, is that because we've backed ourselves in the corner, because there's 6.8 billion of us, we're going to have to accept bioengineered food. We're going to have to accept, if you will, lab beef that's not coming from 
cows. I mean, livestock contributes 18% of the uh, greenhouse gases. So there's a lot of things that we as humanity are going to have to accept that perhaps we wouldn't have accepted 10 or 20 years ago because we didn't have to. In other words, the definition of food, the definition of energy, the definition of transportation, the definition of communication all have to change. They can't be the way that we have defined them as recently as 10 years ago. I'm curious, though, so how do the individual sort of cope with living in this period of the shift age? Well, that's the key question. I think that, you know, in the United States, at least, we've become a nation of free agents or independent agents or independent contractors. And so I really think the individual who has more power than he or she has ever had before has to take that power and try and be as self-sufficient or as independent or as non-reliant on institutions as possible, first of all. Second of all, you can learn something from what I call the digital natives, which are people who are native to the interactive land. In other words, probably 14 or 18 or younger, kids who have never not known the Internet. They communicate, operate, and process information entirely differently than those of us that have had to learn those things. And what, what the digital natives seem to do is they're much more collaborative, they're much more sideways, they're much more multitasking. And I think that speeches that, you know, this is perhaps not psychologically documentable, but I see that it's no coincidence that there's a 500% increase in the diagnosis of ADD in children in the United States of America in the last 15 years, because I think that ADD to some degree is the digital native's adaptation to this new environment. And that so... We look to them as to how we should learn how to process information, which is much more uh, omnivorously and at a higher rate. You know, I think that this election, the 2008 election, I think this time of history is a real uh, linchpin time of history. It's one of those times where, that's why I call it the shiftage, a lot of shift is going on. Shift is going to happen, if you will. People have to shift their points of view. People have to shift their, the ways they look at the world. People have to shift the way they do things. Countries have to shift their allegiances. I mean, I always talk that I think that the United States of America, you know, should look to China and India and Russia and Brazil as our allies rather than legacy allies such as Ireland or Italy, not saying anything bad about them, but we have relationships with them because of our heritage. But if you look to the future, if you look to this century, it makes more sense that we should be closely aligned with China than, say, with Italy. So, so we have to shift everything, reorganize. That's why the threshold decades is the time between what was and what will be, and we are now beginning the what will be. Uh, I'm curious, what is your prognosis then for the future? I'm very optimistic. I believe that we, humanity, are going to have a lot of serious problems rushing at us. And I take the point of view, and I think there's a good probability that we will solve them, and in the process we will transform ourselves. I think the shift age is a time of transformation, and that we will come out the other side, and that around 2020, 2025, we may well enter a new golden dawn of humanity where we'll actually start to experience uh, a global consciousness. I think the neurosphere, the cyberspace that we all know so much, is a technological model for the connective consciousness that could occur. The downside, if I'm wrong, is that there'll be just rolling catastrophes, we won't solve them, and the population of the planet will be a fraction of what it is now uh, by the end of the century.
So I think we're at the fork in the road. Hopefully uh, the latter won't happen. <laughs> and I don't think it will. I think, I think we all are so negatively oriented by the media and politicians that, that we're too fear-based. And I, I see so much opportunity to break to the other side. So that's why my blog is called Evolution Shift. I believe that the outcome of the shift age is that humanity will have an evolutionary shift to a higher level of consciousness. Uh, well, this is probably a question you don't get much as being a futurist, but is there anything about the past that you particularly miss or are nostalgic about? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm so focused on the future. I mean, you know, I miss being young. And <laughs> I miss, I think, as an Amer- speaking as an American, I miss the collaborative can-do spirit that has been so prevalent in times in the past. You know, either space race or World War II or saw it coming out of the Great Depression or the Green Revolution, I, I find we're so partisan, we're so either or, we're so black or white. I think this this presidential campaign hopefully would be the last cultural battle. I, I think we, uh, we as a country need to get to be more high-minded. So I miss that high-mindedness that is just blather at this point. I think it needs to be real. I think there's a hunger for it. Well, maybe to close, uh, what do you think are maybe some final recommendations for uh, this period of the shift age? I think everything needs to be rethought. I think, for example, in Washington, it is broken. I think that the energy policy is not beneficial to humanity or America. It's beneficial to special interests. I think we need to look at everything that we have allowed to occur and evaluate it in a new light. I think the nation state is an anachronism. I think there's going to be some kind of new global council or something in the next decade because the United Nations can't solve global warming. The United Nations can't solve anything. It's an aggregation of nation states. So I think we need to look towards a global as our future. We need to increasingly act independently as individuals and take responsibility for our own lives unlike our parents' generation who could rely on institutions to take care of them. And I think we have to prepare ourselves for being adaptable to different points of view. We all have to, because we have to undo stuff that we've allowed to mindlessly occur. You know, unintended consequences are now gridlocking our ability to evolve to the next level. Well, the, the new book is The Shift Age. And Mr. Hool, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime you want to grok, I'd love to grok. <laughs> well, we like grokking with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, you. And you're just listening to Mr. David Houle discussing the shift age. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Future Bound or Stuck in the Past. So for the following okay. five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're future bound or stuck in the past and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Hool, you ready to play the game? I sure am. Okay, here we go. <laughs> future bound or stuck in the past, Chicago uh, local Oprah Winfrey. I think she's both, but I think she's future bound. She has her eyes on a better place. So I'd call her future bound. All right. Uh, number two is the NBA basketball star Kobe Bryant. Hmm, hard to say. I think the fact that he has so embraced China and understands international celebrityship and has seemed to embrace the Olympics as a high point in his career makes him future bound because that's a global viewpoint. Right. Um, number uh, three is former CEO of Microsoft, Bill Gates. I think that to the degree that he disconnects himself from Microsoft, he's going to be future bound. I think, I think the Microsoft business model is an antiquated one. We're moving in a new direction. We're moving to cloud computing. So I think he's future bound relative to his foundation without a doubt. He's trying to solve all the global problems of disease. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number four is the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. I'm not sure. I think he understands he can't be stuck in the past. I'm not sure he sees what the future is. <laughs> I wonder if anyone in that position could. Yeah, no, I, I think that he, his problem was that uh, Alan Greenspan was the last guy who truly could operate the Fed within a nation-state economy. Ben Bernanke is operating the Fed in a global economy, so the rules are being rewritten as he is showing up for work each day. So he is living himself into the future if he doesn't exactly see it or understand it. Mm. All right, and finally, number five, it's the outgoing president of the United States, George Bush. Well, it's no doubt. The man, the, the, the man I don't know if the man's ever been in the present. <laughs> I mean, I think he's always been in the past. I think that, I think that's the problem we have. I think he's so far in the past that, you know, that's why there's such a desire for change. Totally in the past. Mm. Well, hopefully we'll find change coming up this election here. Yeah, they're both talking about it. I, uh, I probably shouldn't state my political preference, but I'm a futurist, and so I, I vote with my point of view. But thank you for letting me play the game. Can <laughs> I win a prize? Uh, well, I'll see you get five out of five, and uh, I, I think... <laughs> Okay, great. So you agree with my answers? I think the Grokatron 5000 agrees with your answers. So. Okay, the Grokatron, I'm sorry. Sorry, I knew I was just, uh, I forgot I was starting with the human. All right. Okay. All right, well, uh, again, uh, um, we do want to thank you very much for joining us today, playing the game, and, of course, talking about your new book, The Shift Age. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. All right, it Take care. Pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.